0: It was a great week uh, at Vacation Bible School. One of the things that was fun for me was getting to see my three daughters participate in VBS. Uh, My two oldest girls were part of those that were doing some of the leading, and my youngest was part of uh, the program. For those in my church family that know me, uh, you know that I have my three girls. I love my three girls, very proud of them. I'm happy to be a father uh, of girls. And uh, I call my home my little estrogen farm. That's what we farm as a family is estrogen. And, uh, And so when you know that I'm a father of three girls, there's one thing that you can probably accurately assume about me. And that is the fact that I have probably seen every princess or fairy tale movie that's been produced in the last 20 years, all right? When you have girls, it's one of the things that girls like to do. They like to watch those movies, and you know what? I'm not embarrassed to say, you know? Some of them I enjoy, like any other genre. Some of them, you know, don't do it for me. But here's the one thing about all of those movies. They all end pretty much the same way, with the same tagline every single time, and that is they all lived what? happily ever after sometimes it says it on the screen sometimes it's just how the story resolves itself the person ends up with the person they should have always ended up with the kingdom is is restored the relationship is healed all of those things end with and so they lived happily ever after and I get why people like them. I enjoy a story that ends with Happily Ever After. But it's not just princess and fairy tale movies that end that way. Today, you know, adults typically watch movies that are often called feel-good movies. It could be a rom-com sort of a movie, but, but there are these movies that are literally categorized as like feel-good. And the reason why they're called feel-good movies is because when the movie ends, you typically what? You feel good and you feel good. Why? That's the thing I want to sit on just for a minute. Why do we like these fairy tales with the happily ever after? Why do we like movies that we could all these feel good movies? Why do we feel good when these movies are done? The answer is there's resolve. The movies leave the situation not in brokenness, not in hurt, not in pain, but typically at wholeness. Uh, relationships are at peace. People are happy with their situation. And so we like these feel-good movies because they make us feel good and they make us feel good because the people in them are experiencing ultimately what I think every single person would desire for their life. I think every single one of us longs for a life that when it's all said and done, we can say, you know what, there was wholeness there. There was peace in relationships. Things ended up like I hoped they would. There was not conflict. We like the fairy tale movies. We like the feel-good movies. They resonate with us because deep down, we all long for that. And in fact, when you come to the book of Psalms in the Bible, that's the book we've been studying this summer as a church, There's a word that the psalmist used to describe the kind of life that we all long for, and it's called blessed, the blessed life. The psalms, as we've already seen, have mentioned it a couple of times already. This idea that the blessed life is a life of wholeness, of wellness, of completeness, of peace. It's a life devoid of ultimately conflict, but it's a life in which everything is in harmony. And so we saw in Psalm 1 this idea of this blessed life, and we're going to see here again today this concept of the blessed life. It's something that we all want, but the question before us is, can it be obtained? Can we live happily ever after? Now, I'm not talking according to the fairy tale definition of happily ever after. I'm talking according to that definition of like Can I experience a life that I say there's a wholeness about me and about my relationships, there's a rest and there's a peace that we deep down so desperately want? Well, today we're going to look at a psalm, Psalm 32. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn there. The scriptures are also going to be up on the screens this morning. But as you turn there to Psalm 32, the psalmist is going to address this. And in Psalm 32, he's going to make the statement that a blessed life is something that's actually possible. But we're also going to see that there's something that stands in the way of that blessed life and what, if anything, can be done to overcome it. And so that's what we're going to look at and what we're going to consider this morning. So I'm going to start by reading Psalm 32 in its entirety and then we'll walk back through it as we consider, is this happily ever after Is this life of wholeness and peace possible for us? Psalm 32 starts this way. A mascal of David, and I'm going to come back to that term in just a minute, a mascal of David, I'll explain what it means. And then it says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. There it is. Whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there's no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer, Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin, Selah. Therefore, Let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance, Selah. And then God responds. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This is the word of the Lord. Amen? Amen. As we come to this passage... I started by saying that the psalmist here presents to us the possibility, the possibility for you and me of having this life of wholeness, having this blessed life. And the author tells us that, yes, a blessed life is possible. He literally says, blessed is the one, verse 1, and blessed is the man, verse 2. He's saying that he has seen or has himself experienced this idea of a blessed life. He's saying it's possible, but he's also coming right on the heels of that and saying that we all have something that stands in the way of this blessed life. Did you notice it? He makes it abundantly clear. He starts with, blessed is the man who, it's conditional, blessed is the man whose Transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. David here, the psalmist, is saying, you can have a blessed life, you can have this peace, you can have this happily ever after, but there's a condition to it. Something stands in the way, something in your life has to be dealt with, and he gives three different words to describe this one thing. Now, the thing that he says stands in the way, the thing that has to be addressed is that three-letter word, sin. David uses three different words to describe it, but he's describing the same thing. I'm gonna use the word sin. It's the one that encompasses all three, I think, the best. But David first describes it as transgression. You gotta deal with your transgression. Transgression. You got to deal with sin and you got to deal with iniquity. And those three words are all describing the same thing. They're all describing different facets of what we call sin. Transgression, to transgress, literally just simply means to rebel. To have transgressed is to gone against sin someone who's in authority over you. So one of the ways that we think about this concept of sin that David's talking about, one of the things that has to be addressed is saying rebellion. Your rebellion, you, you can't get to the blessed life unless your rebellion is dealt with. And then he says, unless your sin is covered. What's he talking about there? Sin, according to the translation here, well, the most common way that we think about it is missing the mark. It's the idea that you haven't measured up to a moral standard, that you haven't um, achieved what has been set for you to achieve in order to, well, gain admittance into something. And so David is saying, blessed is the one who's dealt with their rebellion, who's dealt with their failure to measure up to a standard that's been set. And then he says, whose iniquity ultimately is not counted against them. Now, iniquity here is to be guilty. It's to be under guilt for n- not only having failed to measure up to that standard, but having had a punishment leveled against you. And so as we look at this psalm, David is coming and saying, here's the problem with all of us. Here's the problem with us happy having that life that we so desperately want. We have a sin problem. We're living in rebellion. We don't measure up, and we're guilty of wrongdoing. Now, we're in church today, and you might be coming and thinking to yourself, boy, I'm so glad that I came this morning to a church to hear that I'm a rebel, that I don't measure up, and I'm full of guilt, right? Well, sometimes we have to go into the darkness before we can actually come to the light. And if we don't ultimately recognize this problem, I just gotta be straightforward and say, like is that fun for me to come to this, but I have to do what God's word calls me to, and I have to lay it out there. If we don't deal with this, then we're holding back. I could lie to you today and say, you can have your happily ever after. Just go your merry way. Do the things that make you you happy. Strive for that and you will find peace and you'll find rest. The Bible says you can't do that. You can't do that. You gotta deal with this issue of sin in your life. And very specifically, David goes on to say in verse 2 that you have to figure out who it is that you've rebelled against, whose standard you don't measure up to, and who you are guilty before. It's one thing to know that you're in rebellion. It's another thing to know that you don't measure up, but who's it all against? David says, look at verse 2, blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. It's right there. That is who David says we have sinned against. That is the one whom we have to deal with if we're ultimately going to experience this blessed life. David says we are in rebellion against him. We fall short of God's standards in the law that he has set. We are guilty before God. It's one thing to know that sin stands in the way. It's another thing to know that the one that we have to deal with as it pertains to our rebellion is God himself. And that's where, if you're taking notes, the second point that I want to make abundantly clear to us is this. Unless our sin is addressed, we will never experience the blessed life. David says it three different ways. Unless this happens to your sin before God, you're not going to enter into this blessed life. But at the same time, what is he telling us? It should be obvious if you're a logical person. He's saying, if your sin can be covered, if your transgression can be forgiven, if your iniquity isn't counted against you, then you can have this blessed life. Are you tracking with me? Those two things are true at the same time. You don't get it, but you can. But something needs to happen. Now, what David does for us, what I think is so beautiful, is that he comes and he tells us, You know what? Here is how. Here is how ultimately you can enter into this blessed life. Here is how your sins can be dealt with. Now, before I jump into that, I have to overcome something. I have to overcome something and encourage the church, my church family. So let me tell you what I have to overcome. What I have to overcome is this. God's Word has just made a claim. God's Word has just made the claim that your life and my life will never know peace, will never know wholeness unless your sin is dealt with. So that's the claim. The question is, is that true? Like, is this thing called sin really that big of a deal? Sin defined as rebellion, as far as not measuring up to a standard, as being accused and held guilty. Here's the beautiful thing about the life that God has given each and every one of us. You know and I know without the Bible telling you it that sin is a problem to the blessed life, that sin is a hindrance to a whole life, a life of peace and rest. Do you know how you know that? Because you have a family or friends in your life. If you have kids, you know that rebellion is a hindrance to wholeness and peace. Because when you tell your child to do something, and they do not do it, and they rebel against you, do you feel at peace with your life and peace within your home? When they don't clean up their room, but instead hit their sibling, what enters into the equation? Conflict. And so you know from your very own experience, I know from my own experience, that rebellion is a big issue, and if, it's, if it exists in my relationship with my children, we're at war, We also know that when someone doesn't measure up to a standard that has been set, that also creates problems for us. Think about the people in your life, not a child, but think about your friends, think about your family that you have conflict with. I guarantee you, I guarantee you that that person that you don't like right now, that person that you're upset with in your life, you are upset with them, you don't like them because they failed to meet some kind of a standard. In relationship, you make some agreement. The agreement is, I'm patient with you, you're patient with me. I'm gentle with you, you're gentle with me. That's the standard. The moment the person doesn't engage you in that way, you experience that conflict. You don't have that blessed life. You don't have your happily ever after. We know that sin is a problem because we've already all experienced it in relationships with other people. David is saying, listen, all of those things are just a shadow of where your bigger problem rests. It's between you and God, ultimately, that the biggest problem exists. And so if you can see that, if you can own that, only when you do that can you enter into and begin to experience what you were created to know. And so David comes and he says, listen, I'm gonna first show you what not to do, and then I'm gonna show you what to do. We have something in our life That stands in the way of the blessed life. We know it to be sin. And notice how the psalm began. The title of the psalm is A Maskell of David. If you look in your notes, you'll know that maskell simply means instruction. Some psalms are just songs of praise. They're these these psalms that are to connect with us on just an emotional level to express things that need to be expressed in our relationship to who God is and who we are. And some psalms, they also go and they give us very clear instruction. And David said, this is a psalm that you sing to instruct your heart. And so what David is telling us in this psalm is like, here is how you can enter into this. Here's how you need to address your sin. In verse three and four, he says, here's what you don't do. In addressing your sin, he says, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Through my groaning all day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. That word selah means pause, stop. Consider what has been said thus far. Uh, we know what the heat of summer feels like right now, don't we? Yeah, like don't don't worry, you can fan yourself. It's all, it's all good, all right? But David is saying, listen, I'm gonna tell you When I tried to deal with sin, my way, and his way was, I'm just simply not going to bring it up. I'm not going to talk about it. I'm not going to confront it. He said, I kept silent. And he says, here is the outcome. I wasted away. I felt oppressed. It was heavy upon me. When you try and deal with sin in your humanity in your own way, David says, the outcome is not good. At minimum, it's depression. It can also be the oppression of your very own soul. And so David says, one of the ways that you address, that you address sin is, is you don't depend on your own way of dealing with it. David says he kept silent. There are other ways that we deal with sin. I'm going I'm to give you a quick seven here, real quick seven ways that I see that we typically deal with sin. When we know that we've rebelled, when we see it, when we know that we haven't measured a standard, one of the first things that we do is we try and blame shift. It was my mom's fault. It was my dad's fault. It was her fault. It was his fault. We we try and cast blame on other people. We get that from Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve in the garden were the very first two people, very first two people who ever sinned against God. And the very first thing that they did when they were confronted with their sin was, Adam said, she made me do it. She said, the serpent made me do it. And the serpent's like, yep, there's no one else to blame here, right? But we blame shift. It's what we do. We sometimes try and define it away. We try and say, it wasn't really sin. That's not what's going on here. Because if we can give it a different name, if we cannot make it be something that looks like rebellion or failure to meet a standard, we feel better about ourselves. And we modern people, we like to do this a whole lot. But there's a great um, example in Russian literature from the book Crime and Punishment. Fyodor Dostoevsky wrote it. If you've read Crime and Punishment, then give yourself a round of applause. Good job, you made it all the way through. But one of the characters in the book, this gentleman, he decides that guilt and shame, sin, they're they're just religious constructs. They're things that humanity has created. And so he goes in the book and he says, I'm gonna prove that guilt is just something that we create. It's not real. There's not really an ultimate standard out there. And so he decides to prove his point that he's gonna murder someone. And so that's what he looks to do. But he doesn't look to murder a nice person. He finds a woman that nobody really likes, and he's like, I'm going to murder her. Nobody's going to miss her, and I'm going to prove that I can control it. I can define what sin is, and it's not really that bad of a thing. And so he goes through with it, and Dostoevsky shows this man's descent into the oppression as he begins to realize, no, 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 sin isn't something that you and I create, It's not just a category that religious people have made up. He begins to feel the guilt and the oppression. He's like, where does that come from? He doesn't begin to feel any relief until finally he turns himself in. He got away with the crime, but he realizes it's too much for me. I have to confess it to someone. He confesses it, and he finds or at least begins to find some bit of the weight released. So we try to find it a way. Sometimes we try and deaden ourselves to it. We medicate ourselves. Sometimes it's through drugs. Sometimes it's through alcohol. Sometimes it's through shopping. Sometimes it's through food. Sometimes it's through watching YouTube or Netflix for hours on end because we don't want to deal with a thing in our life. Let's make ourselves laugh. Let's make ourselves entertained. Let's deaden how we feel. We criticize, gossip, run other people down. That's exhausting. I feel bad about myself because I know I've done something wrong, but you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to talk about that person. As long as they're worse than I am, I'm okay. Nobody likes that person, by the way, right? The person who runs to this all the time, eventually they don't have any friends, their life becomes empty because all their friends start thinking, if they're talking about that person when, I, when they're not around, I know they're doing the same for me. Sometimes we try to achieve, we set goals and we say, all right, I failed in this way, I'll make a different goal. If I can make that goal, I'll be okay. We give incredibly generously. We, we look at our lives and we say, so I failed in this area, but I'm going to make up for it by, by giving and donating and doing all of these things. It's kind of tied to this, penitence, where we, where we try and make up through good works our failures. Here's the deal with every single one of these. David says they all fail. They will not work. If you try and deal with your rebellion problem, your iniquity problem, your failure to measure up, you're never gonna succeed because here's the deal. The deal is we have ultimately sinned against God. And David says, unless God is the one who does something by covering your transgression, By forgiving your sin, unless God is the one who acts and deals with it, your sin problem remains, which is why David in verses five through seven make it abundantly clear to us that forgiveness starts with turning to God, the one we've sinned against. We turn to God, the one we've sinned against. Look at verse five again. He says, I was quiet. That didn't work out too well for me. So I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord. And then look at this. This is so amazing. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Stop there. Consider that. We're going to break it down, but I want you just to see. David said, I did this thing and then I had to do no more. There were no other hoops for me to jump through. I did this thing, and God just forgave. He forgave my sin. And then verse 6 says, Therefore, remember, this is a psalm of instruction. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. What this means is this psalm isn't simply about sinners, unbelievers, repenting, confessing, and coming to know God and his forgiveness, this psalm is ultimately about people like us who have known God as Savior through his son Jesus Christ and coming and realizing that sin sometimes is still in our lives. We still sometimes this side of heaven will do things that we ought not to do. And David is saying, I'm telling you, if you're one of those people that count yourself as the people of God and sin pops up in your life in whatever manner it might come, offer up prayer to him. This is for you. This is for you so that you can continue to know the life in God that you were created to have. And so in these verses, David ultimately comes and says, here's, here's what's to be done. Here is how God works. Number one, we acknowledge our sin before God. David says, I stopped being quiet and I acknowledged my sin to you. Look at verse five. It's so, so simple. I acknowledge my sin to you. The, the Hebrew word there for acknowledge is one of my favorite Hebrew words. I'll, I'll always remember it. It's a simple word that, it's yada. It's to know. And so David is saying, what I did was I made known. I made known the knowledge that I had of my sin to God. It's the classic, I know, now you know and I know that you know that I know I'm not hiding my sin David said I'm getting it out I'm getting it in the open I'm recognizing my rebellion I'm recognizing my failure to meet your standard I'm recognizing my guilt I'm calling it out I'm not suppressing it I'm not hiding it I'm bringing it to God I'm laying it bare before him in Psalm 51 which is probably David's more famous psalm of confession. He says this, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. That's what David says. Verse 4, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. To deny the sin in our life, To keep it hidden is to ultimately not be truthful with ourselves or with God. And if we blame shift, if we redefine it, if we try and cover it on our own, instead of bringing it before him, David says there's no hope to enter into that blessedness. There's no hope for you and I to experience that wholeness. We must bring it to him. And then he does something very interesting. He says, and I did not cover... My iniquity. It's not just simply that I exposed it, but he called it my iniquity, my sin. Do you know what he's doing there? He's not just acknowledging our sin to God. He's owning his sin before God, which is what we must do. We can't just say, here is the sin, but it's my sin. I own it. I'm not blame shifting. I'm not pretending it wasn't my doing. It was me and me alone who did this thing. No one else is guilty, I am guilty. It's not fun. I'm just going to be straightforward. It's never fun to know that you're guilty. It's never fun to be called out as the rebel and to know it. It's never enjoyable to ultimately recognize I failed to meet a standard. God as he always does showed me this past week just a blatant way in which I could have easily not owned my sin. Now, Of course, in order for me to own my sin, I'm going to have to tell you a story of when I did sin. So you ready for this? Here we go. Now, the first hour was really mean. I hope you guys are nicer, okay? So my wife Hannah and I are having a conversation with our youngest daughter, and it's one of those situations where, you know, she can only hear so many people at one time talking to her. And we were each trying to make a point that she needed to hear. We were kind of going back and forth on the point. And I was right in the middle of trying to make a point that I felt would be very effective in helping my daughter. Well, my wife felt like she had a very good point to make and she wasn't quite done with her. So she started speaking over me. I am not proud of what I'm about to admit next, but here is what happened. She began to talk, and I knew that my youngest could not hear what I was saying if somebody else was speaking, and so I simply went, Hannah, please, shh. Now, yes, I shushed my wife, okay, all right, no judgment here, all right, but I I told her, you know, Hannah, shh, I'm trying to, now, come on now. Was that the nice thing to do? Was that the godly thing to do, to shush my wife? Come on, you can be honest. Was it? No, it wasn't. There was about a million other ways that I could have dealt with that situation without ultimately throwing it back in my wife's face. I was saying in that moment, you're not important what you have to say. I am. Well, at minimum, that's what I was saying. And so my wife, being the godly woman that she is, went ahead and she let me finish what it was that I was saying. And then after our youngest child left the room, she came to me and she said, you know, it wasn't necessary for you to shush me in that, in that moment. And I was like, was it really a shush? I mean, did I really, you know? Uh, in my mind and in my flesh, immediately I was trying to think of the ways to get around it. But God in His kindness and by His grace convicted me. And instead of me just simply... Passing it off as, you know, but she really needed to hear what I had to say and, you know, you shouldn't have. No, I owned it before my wife. In that moment, I thought of all the other ways that I could have covered up that sin on my own, but I had sinned against her. I had not been gentle with her in that moment. And I looked at her and I said, would you please forgive me? I should not have done that. When David talks about I did not cover my iniquity, this is what he's talking about. He's talking about owning our sin before God, taking full responsibility for it. And after David had done that, something happens. Verse 5 says, I said I will confess my transgression to the Lord. And then words that are hard for me to fathom, without him having to do anything else, David says, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. It happened like that. David knew that when he had brought his sin before the Lord, when he had owned it, when he had confessed it to him, God did not withhold his forgiveness of David, praise the Lord, but he gave it to David. He knew in that moment that God had forgiven his sin. The the whole way in which we deal with our sin is we own our sin before God, we acknowledge it before Him, and then we trust in His forgiveness. Did you know, church family, that that is who our God is? The means that He has always provided for His people is when you are in a broken relationship with me, when you have done what ought not to have been done, when you have violated that standard, when you have lived in rebellion in whichever way, All you have to do is take up the means of grace that I have provided for you. Bring that sin to me, and I will deal with it. David knew this to be true because in the Old Testament, the saints of the Old Testament, God had provided the sacrificial system. You know, we look at that in the Old Testament, we see them, they're like, they're making, they're killing goats and they're killing heifers and and they're putting them on the altar, and there's all this blood, and what's going on there? It's God saying in a visual picture, listen, death is required to atone for sin. Sacrifice has to be made. These sacrifices in and of themselves don't do it, but they are showing you and pointing you to a greater sacrifice that will come. And so when you make that sacrifice, what you're doing, when you make that confession, what you're doing, you're saying, I know that I am a sinner who can't atone for what I've done. God, you must provide a way. And so the saints of the Old Testament, like David, knew that when they followed the Lord in the ways that he had provided, forgiveness was there for them. We, on this side of the cross of Jesus Christ, look backwards at the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus, and we say it's because of that sacrifice that we too, like David, can take hold of the fact that when we don't Hold on to our sins, but we bring it before the Lord and ask for his forgiveness through repentance. He, as David says, forgives our sins. And look at what verse 7 says. In verse 7, David says, When you have your sins forgiven, verse 7 says, You are a hiding place for me, you preserve me from trouble. You sur- surround me with shouts of what? Deliverance. Deliverance, he says. No longer are you in the state that you were. You have been taken out of your troublesome situation. You have now entered into and are experiencing what I have provided for you to experience, and that is forgiveness in me. I just, I love this so much. This is our Pope, I started by saying, can the blessed life be ours? Can we know this and experience it? David comes to us, and he says, yes, when God deals with your sin, when God covers your iniquity, when God forgives your transgression, you know that you're at peace. You know that you have found your rest in him this, my friends, is our ultimate hope. And the fruit that comes from this, here's the beautiful fruit that comes from this. I have in your notes, they living in God's forgiveness. David doesn't just simply come and say, here's how sin is ultimately dealt with. He says, here's what it looks like. Here's how you know, here's how you know that, that you are living in the fruit of that. Number one, We'll look at verses 8 through 11. I'll close with these verses. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. I'm not distant from you. I'm not looking away from you. My eyes upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. David says three things. Three things come out of knowing that forgiveness has been received. Number one, we receive the Lord's instructions. We receive, we want to hear from him. We receive his instruction. He says, I will teach you. You will walk in my ways. You're not gonna be like a mule anymore. You're not gonna be like a horse that needs to be forced into a direction. You will want to go in my ways because you'll know that my way is good. And so you'll follow my instruction. David says, we will turn from our sin. When we know the way of the Lord, when we see that we were going this way and the Lord says, no, that's not the way you keep going. You've confessed that. You've owned that. We immediately start going in the other way. And finally, and this is the most beautiful of all, he says you rejoice. We rejoice in our righteousness. And I say our righteousness because that's what David says. When you experience the forgiveness that comes ultimately through the Lord, he takes you from that place of being viewed as a rebel, from being viewed as someone who is guilty, and he says, I'm giving you a new righteousness. You are declared right before me. It's not just simply that I have covered for your sins. It's as though in my sight you have never sinned. This is the beautiful transaction that we see in fullness in the cross of Jesus Christ. The unrighteous become righteous. I talked about in the beginning that happily ever after. Church, friends here today, the happily ever after, it's not getting all the toys that you have ever wanted. It's not all the money that you'd have. I'm going to save this for another sermon. There's this large study that was done, and it says money doesn't buy you happiness but they have discovered it does make things a little easier. So that's, it's a whole other discussion, but that's not the happy ever afterlife that we want. The happy ever after life that we want is to know that we're not guilty any longer, that we can stand before God and know that he loves us, that our creator cares for us, and that there's nothing any longer standing in our way of fully knowing the beauty and the joy of being in him. David says that kind of blessed life it can be yours when you know and experience the forgiveness of your sins and you can know and experience the forgiveness of your sins by coming to him resting in him and the forgiveness that he has provided so here's what I want to do in closing I'm gonna pray for us but I want you to bow your heads with me right now in this moment and I want you to consider in this place and in this time I know it's a little warm but that's that's okay don't fall asleep, but instead ask your heart the question, if today you're a follower of Jesus Christ, are you carrying any guilt? Are you carrying any weight? Is there something you've been trying to define away, something that you haven't brought before the Lord? God says, I have the blessed life for you already. Is there something you need to confess to him? Maybe you're here today and maybe you've never made that confession in the first place. Maybe the very first thing you need to say to him today is, I have been a rebel and I've been someone who has turned from you, rejected you, but I know that you welcome the rebels in and that you forgive, that you're faithful to do that. Would you even confess that today? And so Lord, hear whatever prayers are being lifted to you in these moments. And we know that they are heard because you don't turn a deaf ear to your sons and to your daughters and to those who call out for mercy. Lord, may we be a church that walks in this forgiveness, that walks in this truth, that we might be a people who experience that blessed life because we don't hide our sin. We bring it to the only one who can do something about it. And then we walk in that forgiveness. So we pray and we ask these things in Christ's name. And all God's people said... Amen.